So this is the greater discourse on the simile of the, of the heartward. As always, as we know when we read these uh, discourses, there is a fair bit of uh, rep repetition, but getting to the heart of the matter, which is what this particular discourse is about, is a remarkable uh, endeavour. So, um, the, the uh, teaching is giving at Rajgir, or Rajagaha, as it says here, on the mountain of Vulture's Peak. It's a place about three hours north of Bodhgaya. In the Mahayana texts, it is the place where many of the great uh, teachings attributed to, uh, to the Buddha uh, are, are given at uh, Vulture's Peak. And the Buddha begins with a word which has become rather of common uh, use uh, these days, both uh, politically and in the world of psychotherapy. And the Buddha says, essentially, we are all victims. He says, I am a victim of birth, aging and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. I am a victim of suffering. God, it's grim, isn't it? And, and then he begins to track and to f follow how in exploration of things with life, how easily we get stuck. And there are a few key points in this discourse. Um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who immense love of the sutras, the great Thai teacher of the last uh, century, the great radical former of, reformer of Buddhism in Thailand, um, spoke about this particular discourse and has uh, a book <coughs> published by Wisdom Publications called, I think it's called The Heart of the Bow Tree, which was published six or seven years ago. And it's a tremendous exploration of the world of I and my <coughs> and pointing to the, uh, <coughs> emptiness uh, of it all and that particular um, uh, commentary of his has some influence from this particular discourse he used to refer to it uh, a lot and particularly the last paragraph which I'll uh, come to in a mo moment or so there. So, he speaks of going from home to uh, uh, home homelessness uh, at the beginning, and then he, then he points to, and this is very, very typical in secular uh, culture as well as in spiritual life, of some of the primary intentions and motivations which drive us along. And, and he says, how easy it is one uh, goes towards things for the purpose of gain, honour and uh, renown. And this motivates us. And if we just look into our <coughs> daily life uh, circumstances for a, for a moment, how much the movement and the intentions of the mind is towards gain. And of course, material gain, money, acquisitions of property, possessions, goods and items. And how much 
we are moved along and uh, influenced by honour and renown. In these two particular concepts, in understanding them in a contemporary way, one might say, one might say, that with, with one, this uh, honour, it's a kind of need and desire for attention and approval from others so that we are liked by family, by friends, by people who have contact with us. We want their respect, we want their attention, we want their affection, we want their approval. And also with, uh, with this movement that takes place, it also goes further than that into the renown, meaning in this particular case it's about our reputation it's about our standing. It, that may be in work, it may be among peers, it may be amongst our superiors or whatever. So there's these two these movements of life. One is to gain, to have. The other is to be loved, to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected, to gain the approval. And he says, though, and there's a very key sentence that's running through this particular this particular discourse discourse here, and he keeps re keeps repeating it uh, as he does. He says one is pleased with this, and he says one feels or one that one's intention is fulfilled. But this is the deceit. So one moves oneself along in the idea of gaining with the belief and hope that one's intention and one's life will be fulfilled by gain and by gaining the respect of others. And these two values we know in secular culture and sometimes in spiritual life as well, in the Sangha as well, really can be driving, driving one along. Yeah. And, is, and then in comes the simile. And in the simile uh, he says, we go to a tree and then we think the heart of the tree and we grab hold of some feature of the tree. We think this is the heart of the tree. We grab hold of the leaves. We grab hold of a twig. We take hold of the branches. We take hold of the outer bark of, of the tree. And we think that's what the tree is. That's the heart of the, of, of the tree. And thus our view of things becomes uh, limited uh, defined and of course ultimately it isn't fulfilling and we, we could say in a very generalized way my goodness me we look at the culture and society how much gain and being loved and accepted and approved of by others is a primary reason for existence so then he says he could take it uh, further and he says, through not, through, because this is not fulfilling, what this means is that the dukkha will continue. One can't end dukkha by gain, good reputation, approval from uh, uh, others. And therefore, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, and the suffering, and the sorrow, and the regrets, and the agitation in various ways will, will still continue. 
So, seeing this clearly, this is the important thing is, that when we see this clearly, then we are not, to use the words here, intoxicated, caught up in, gain, honour, renown, etc. So then one begins to look a bit further than that. Sometimes, and then he goes on to look at sila, that means the uh, virtue or uh, ethics. And both these two words, you know, virtue, ethics, morality, uh, etc., I don't think very much you and I might use the language a great deal in everyday life. It's a little bit of this specialized spiritual uh, Dharma language. But I notice sometimes in just informal conversations with people, I'll say what matters, like we were exploring this morning. And sometimes just a, a natural person's response will be, well, um, to lead a good life, this would be. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, to lead a life and, and not hurt people. And that going further or going beyond gain, uh, honour, you know, respect, uh, and all of those pursuits, the person then may say, well, there's more important things in life than that, and something more important is living a good life. And living a good life is not hurting people, not harming them. And then we'll say, ah, oh, this is ethics, this is sila. So then the person begins to follow this through. And uh, in, doing, in doing so, the person kind of starts praising themselves. Well, and, and we hear this as well. It's translated as here as, I am virtuous, I am of good uh, character, and other people, well, they're immoral, they're hopeless, you know, they're an evil uh, character. Retranslating that a little bit more into contemporary language, what we notice there, we say, well, I'm, I'm leading a good life, you know, I'm doing my best, I'm not trying to hurt people. But all these the other people, what they're doing to each other, and the harm that they are causing, etc. So sometimes the intention is there. We are following it through. But as he points out, how easily it leads to the dualistic, judgmental mind. I am leading a good life but these other people, whoever they are, are not. So we praise ourselves, think we're important, we think we're special, and we put others down, and we get, get caught up in this. And thus, one becomes intoxicated, or caught up, in the attainment of uh, virtue, that means uh, leading a, a good life. And then he points out, he said, one feels, well, that's enough. This is fulfilling, his wish is fulfilled, he just wants to live a good life. As a result of making this the final thing that we can do with our life, he says, one grows negligent. Everybody understand the word negligent? Anybody translate? Lack of interest to go further, if I might say. One falls into negligence. 
one becomes just satisfied temporarily with negligence and with that the suffering will, will grow again because one has just settled for being a good, good person and thinks that's all that life is all, all about. Yes sir, please ask, and of course do in, in, um, interrupt, yes. Yeah. Uh, on that point I um, had some uh, thoughts. If there is someone who is really content with, with this uh, uh, point of his life or her life, yes. yeah? complaining about others, yes. uh, that, what I, uh, that was, uh, was a bit difficult. Every with every step, yes. there was complaining about mm. others. Mm -hmm. That was uh, that was not good. Mm -hmm. I, I, I yes. Uh, mm. yeah, yeah. But without complaining about others, why not? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take the first. If there is identification with the idea of leading a good life. If there is holding to one position, it easily and very, very often invites the opposite. And easily the view arises, we think we know what's best, what a good life is all about. All that one has to do is to think about one's parents. <laughs> parents are... I love my parents. <laughs> completely persuaded and we persuade ourselves that we know what is best we know what a good life is and therefore we know what is best for our children and when our children go off to India or go off to the ward house or wherever it might, might be they may feel well, we are living in the real world and our children are out of touch with the real world because we know what the good life is so, I think in not every case, but in many, many cases, the comparing and the judging comes about if we really have the idea, I am living the good life, or a virtuous life, or a right, the right way of life. Easily invites the view that others are not. One side of the picture tends to invite the others. I agree. There are, I think that I would say, probably more exceptions People lead a good life, don't boast, don't brag, genuinely humble, don't cause a harm to others and their livelihood and the way of life is modest, it's moderate and it's healthy. Uh, but even with that, life is still not fulfilled according to the Dharma. That's it. It's still not fulfilled. Because it isn't fulfilled, there will be, even for a good person, non-judgmental, natural human goodness, periods of time of problems, difficulties, feeling hurt, feeling upset, things going wrong, etc. Even for those who live a good life. And as the Buddha has pointed out elsewhere in the text, even the good can go to hell. Nervous breakdown, despair, suicidal, abnormal and painful states of abnormal psychology, uh, etc. 
So therefore he says, good life, good virtue, wholesome, uh, moral life, however we might desc uh, describe it, uh, is not fulfilling. That's the key. Not the key to it. So then he says, then he goes another step further, it's the usual thing with these things, and that person again tends to grasp onto some feature of the tree and regard that this is what life is all about, this is the heart of what living is all about, of leading, living a good life. So then a person looks at all of this and she or he says, well, maybe there's more to life than just those two features which are, 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 are a common response. So from that, the person still, still reflecting, still I'm living a good life, um, looking at this whole idea, desire for gain and for reputation and to be somebody or to be somebody special or, or whatever and says yes but I'm still a victim of birth, ageing, sickness, pain and death and his Ajahn Buddhadasa used to start his uh, 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 talks great one, great one-liner Dear brothers and sisters in birth, ageing, sickness and death I think just <laughs> People's back went straight up the first time they heard it, I can tell you <laughs> So then, one then, then begins, because <coughs> it, that isn't fulfilling the word that's translated here is, is samadhi, is concentration but it's in a way it's the relationship to consciousness here in other words it's meditation it's mindfulness it's awareness it's the fullness of attention too it's the it, it, samadhi the word also includes the range and depths of uh, uh, deep inner experiences all of this so then the person says okay just living the good life that can't be the end of things therefore let me explore consciousness let me find out what samadhi is concentration the experiences of meditation mindfulness practices awareness and again how easy it is that one temporarily feels this is fulfilling this is not unusual with the meditators and the view then arises inwardly when I'm doing my practice I'm having great experiences with my uh, meditation this is what it's all about and I really feel fulfilled when I'm in deep meditation when I've got real deep samadhi who wants to go any further this is where it is at in contemporary English once again, and one sees it in the world of meditation, we see it in the world of mindfulness, we see it in the world of people who feel we are living with awareness, so aspects of samadhi, how easy it is to identify with it, to attach oneself in it, and at the time when it feels one's intention feels fulfilled. And again, how easily, as we know, on the meditation hall and other times we then begin to feel I am so much more a dedicated meditator I am, we don't say this to others 
I am more mindful than others. I am what's the other? They're not very aware, etc., etc. So the attention is then going to the inner life, to meditation, awareness, mindfulness, and the self, the I and the my, <coughs> is then building itself up on that. That's, this is where it's all at. And once again, one thinks, ah, oh, this is what it's all about. Meditation is what it's all about. And then once again, one is back into grasping features of the tree, the leaves, the branches, the bark, etc., etc., as being what the heart of the tree is all about. Once we become satisfied with uh, all of that, we get stuck again. We get stuck, in this case, with being the meditator. We get stuck with being mindful. And recently, and I'm talking recently, last few years, how easy it is for so many books, and I take my share of responsibility uh, here as much as anybody uh, else's, how easy it is to kind of put out a message that mindfulness and meditation is the heart of the matter. My, my, my last contribution in writing is a book called Mindfulness for Everyday Living. There is a buzzword at the moment going around in the corporate world, in the world of psychology, about mindfulness. There are conferences amongst the psychotherapists taking place on mindfulness. There's the, the, the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama and John Kabat-Zinn and Gunaratna and many others. On what? On mindfulness. There's a growing recognition that mindfulness practices help to keep us a bit more steady, a bit more clear, uh, more grounded uh, in life. It doesn't have all the religious baggage that goes with it. And therefore, mindfulness practices are, and samadhi practices, means meditative mindfulness, meditative concentration, are really, really important, which they are. But too much repetition, and it becomes the noble one-fold path, <laughs> called mindfulness. Mindfulness is the answer for everything. And so easily, we get attached to this. We hold on to this. So then, typical Buddha fashion, points out the issue and then dismisses it. He's always doing this. This is his favourite lifetime activity. Pointing out something useful and saying, let's go beyond it. So, recognising the good life, yes. Recognising the value of mindfulness and meditation, yes. And then he goes to the next aspect of what's called Sikha, S-E-K-A-H, no, sorry, S-E-K-H-A, threefold training. And then he goes to wisdom, knowledge, and vision. Important areas, this... Uh, <coughs> In knowledge and vision, the, probably the word knowledge here would probably be jnana, I would imagine. And vision would be dasana, dasha. And I'll just explain a little bit here. The word knowledge in uh, uh, the, the Buddha's teachings 
It's got nothing to do with uh, university. Yeah. Where the West, as you and I know, as we've exported it as well, is obsessed. <coughs> that's, that's really an understatement with knowledge. We are knowledge mad there. And how much the ego, the I and my, can feed on knowledge. We feel if we have more knowledge, this increasing our knowledge will help us to get a better job, a better career, it will be uh, good for us, etc. Uh, etc. Et I was speaking where Penny comes from at, uh, in the university at uh, where was it? O Ox Oxford. And I just made one small one liner. It wasn't very much. But did it bring a response in one letter? I just said, universities have become ego-making factories. I didn't think much about it. But then a professor from Balliol College sent me such an irate letter. I must have pressed his buttons. <laughs> there. But just how easily knowledge and having letters after our name, because somehow we haven't got enough letters in our name, <laughs> becomes so important in this world of I and, and my. But knowledge in Dharma is not related to accumulative knowledge. It's that which changes us, that which helps to dissolve suffering and anguish, that which brings about insight and understanding. It's the knowledge that makes a genuinely beneficial difference to our life. This is called knowledge, with a kind of capital K there. And of course the vehicles for knowledge, in that respect, can be very varied. Knowledge can come, and the primary form is through listening to the Dharma. It's a form of knowledge. We listened to Barry earlier giving some uh, uh, teaching about the relationship of memory to, to the here and now, about the movement of the personality, causes and conditions. That's giving us knowledge. If that knowledge touches us and we get benefit from that, then that's knowledge in the Dharma. It actually makes the difference to us. And there's tremendous interest in Dharma knowledge and one of the great strengths of the of the teachings is that it's m noticeably different from religion because it often has beliefs that go along uh, uh, with it and my goodness me just coming back from the Middle East you know as I mentioned a couple of days ago and got there Judaism Islam and Christianity all in competition with each other and I said uh, there in a public talk the last thing you want with three religions competing with each other is Buddhism <laughs> and then have four religions you know, struggle with each, with, each, with each other so Dharma is not a religion to me religion is beliefs and and some of the beliefs, I have to say, I regard as a complete insult to my intelligence. <laughs> really. <laughs> In all the religions, 
example. Eh? For example. God loves us and permits all this obscenity there. The Bible or the Torah and all the nightmares that have gone on in it, the terrorism, the violence, the hatred, the punishment of God, etc. etc. You and I have spoken about this. Um, Jesus resurrecting like an Apollo rocket up into heaven. <laughs> the virgin birth. Burning in hell for all eternity. I mean, it's just... It is, it's out to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, of course, the, the, the Buddhists were something else. But anyway, well, well, I've said enough. So the Dharma is not religion. Because it's a questioning. What is helpful and useful there? And you know, and Buddhism has its, you know, odd, you know, odd, odd beliefs as as as, as well uh, there. And when one serious Buddhist once said to me, from some quote from a commentary, that when the Buddha was born, <laughs> he came out of his mother's womb, took seven steps raised his hands and said this is my last birth I mean, oh. <laughs> I mean it's enough to make one weep <laughs> this is religion this is, this is I, I just I cannot relate to it I cannot relate to it I cannot relate to miracles in the, which go against dependent ari uh, ar arising age there I, I remember when it was Saya Baba. Most people have heard of Saya Baba. It was his 65th birthday. And I was in India ar around that time, just a few years ago. And I, and many people, even some jumbo jets, had been hired from the West. I remember, and filled with devotees of Saya Baba. And people wish to be devoted to whoever. There's no problem. With me. So it was at Delhi airport and some were flying back and one person said because Sai Baba is producing all of this uh, vibhuti ash, you know, sacred ash, you know, I mean, personally I think it's just stuck to his fingers and he's going like this, but my, my view, oh, but one person said to me, Sai Baba is, has so much power over matter there that in various places around the world as he produces vibhuti, sacred ash from nothing to something and giving it to people it's coming out of his uh, in photographs in the homes of devotees out of his eyes nose ears and mouth at the same time I said, I am a poor, stupid Dharma teacher. <laughs> I'm in the tradition of dependent arising. If this is true, please tell me where, which photograph of Sai Baba this is happening. I promise you faithfully, 
I would take a plane there. I just ask one thing. I can just uh, before rub my uh, my shirt down the front. And if the sacred ash comes out of the eyes, nose holes, ear holes, and mouth in front of my eyes, I will completely give up all understanding of dependent arising and I will go down to Sai Baba and I will bow morning, noon and night. <laughs> I gave my address, I gave my email, I gave my phone number, there were lots of Sai Baba, I said any one of you just contact me and I promise I will come, I promise I will come, made a, made a promise. I am still waiting for the phone call. <laughs> so, there is knowledge. Even knowledge which is insightful, even knowledge which, shows, which brings about great wisdom, how easily we can attach to it. How easily, and similarly with vision, and vision dasana, darshan, in the Sanskrit, or no, darshan often means face-to-face meeting with the guru. It's a darshan. In Dharma, vision has two meanings. One meaning is seeing things clearly. It's the darshan or the dasana of seeing things as they are. There's also vision, as uh, the Buddha on his enlightenment said, after the enlightenment there was vision. And that refers to a fairly common usage that you and I might use. Um, we were talking with Paul this, this morning, that sometimes from inside of us uh, an inspiration comes, an idea a flash of insight, or whatever. And we see, I want to follow this through. There's a vision. The Buddha's vision was very straightforward. There is suffering in this world, and there is the resolution of it. That was the vision. And therefore, the whole life of the next 45 years was a complete, single-pointed, focused dedication to this vision to resolve the problems that human beings experience once and for all. That was the, vi- the vision. And, as he says, how easy for all of us. We can attach to knowledge, means insightful knowledge, wise knowledge. We can attach to vision and also to dasan, meaning seeing things as they are. But also that does include the vast range of mystical experiences extraordinary experiences that we can have and have a meeting with those, a contact with those and I think those frankly are far more important than going off to see the street corner guru for a darshan profound deep experiences of those darshans are extraordinary which may take place with an individual they may take place through meditation but, and as we were listening to just a, a little while ago in a way the the great darshan of life is the one with the here and now. But even this darshan of the here and now, important as it is, the Buddha says, 
but still the, there is not fulfillment still things are not fulfilled even with all of this so then he goes on as he does and then once again he goes, goes back to the simile, simile. Uh, yes, please do. Yes. Um, uh, quite often, knowledge and vision, jnana dasana, is yeah. associated with irreversible insight, the stream entry, that expression. Yeah? Yes, yes. Yes. It doesn't seem to mean that here because I wouldn't have thought you could get attached to that, but maybe you can. You can. <laughs> Life, uh, one can be attached or, or, well, yes. to anything. And, the, and as you point out, in the turning of the corner, or the old language, stream entry. Uh, there, there is knowledge uh, in the way that we spoke of. There is that vision in the way that we spoke of, but easily attachment can arise with it, and that is the experience often there. This has been used a bit more generally here. It is, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. And it's not unusual with the attachment too that we say, oh God, I really understood things at that time so clearly. I had such a incredible deep experience or oh, I really saw where I was going with life I really had a vision of what my life was doing and where it was going all of that reflects all too human a holding onto knowledge and vision that goes on so then he then in the last piece refers to uh, as it is translated here he said, because none of this is fulfilling, he refers to perpetual liberation. Very great term here. Perpetual liberation. I'm not quite sure what the, the Pali word for perpetual is uh, here. But, and then comes the final paragraph. And this particular um, paragraph, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is one of my uh, favourites and no better than when uh, Ryder Books of Random House uh, asked if I would like to pick out one quote per day for the Pali Suttas and thus over a three month period systematically read all 5,000 uh, Suttas that which uh, enjoyed most of the time there that I wanted to start off with one that I loved and I felt said said it all in a space of a few lines so January the first is this last paragraph and somewhat inspired by commentaries that uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, made ab about it really summed up his teachings so it reads, this holy life, holy, today we use the word spiritual, exactly the same thing, does not have gain, honour and renown for its benefit. Nor does the spiritual life have the attainment of virtue, doing good for its benefit. Nor for the attainment of samadhi, for its benefit. Nor for knowledge and vision for its benefit but it is this unshakable deliverance of the mind unshakable freedom 
that is the goal and the heart of it all. This is what it's about. I think it's just a five star statement. Freedom of mind, which can't be lost, it's perpetual because it can't be lost, it can't be destroyed, it can't be take, taken away. And it's in this uh, liberation of mind, in heart and mind, of course, in this liberation uh, of mind that one uh, realizes and uh, knows what the goal of the spiritual life is. And this is what it comes to. Enough. What could be better? And then he follows on, I won't go into it now, but then uh, he, he uh, follows on with uh, the shorter discourse on the simile of the heartwood, which actually is longer. probably longer. <laughs> it's pretty so, long. So uh, what Except. do you mean by the deliverance of the mind? What is meant here is that when there are um, internal problems which feel uh, unresolved, <laughs> There's, in those times and moments there is usually a sense of limitation, restriction, feeling stuck, feeling uh, caught up uh, in, in some way or other, and feeling to be blocking our natural sense of freedom of mind or freedom of, freedom of being. And the significance of this uh, closing uh, statement is that in this true freedom of being there, that the normal issues, freedom of mind, that affect us no longer have substance or meaning, which means, put it in Buddhist language, see the emptiness of. That, that includes existence and non-existence, it includes being, or being somebody, or just being and becoming. It includes presence and absence. It includes life or death. In authentic and true freedom of mind and freedom of being, the spell of all of this is over with. And that's what's implied. Therefore there is no measurement to it, and the discovery, appreciation, realization, we might say, uh, of that is quite indestructible. And this is called uh, perpetual deliverance, perpetual freedom. And from, out of that, comes naturally all else that was expressed. So, in that uh, respect, the needs that one has, when the needs that one that we have, they come in life, kind words and appreciation come actually hearing this is a bit from Paul this morning the sense of uh, living a good life comes samadhi comes knowledge and vision comes but one knows that's not where it's really at no matter how much in periods of our life those things seem to be the most important and we put 
in any one of those sometimes a lot of time a lot of energy a lot of priority they have a value they have a usefulness but that repeated line but none of that is fulfilling and therefore in the fulfillment utter liberation true freedom of mind one knows the fulfillment of it and out of that comes all the, the rest. Okay. <coughs>